This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And today we'll be talking to Kelly Underman about her fantastic new book called Feeling Medicine, How the Pelvic Exam Shapes Medical Training. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, Sure. So I did my bachelor's degree at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Um, And then I did my PhD in sociology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. After that, I also did a postdoc in the School of Medicine there in the Department of Medical Education um, before joining Drexel University in Philadelphia. And how did you come to write Feeling Medicine? Because it, it from reading the book, it seems like this, this research actually started before it was officially your dissertation research. Yeah, it did. So I had actually worked as a gynecological teaching associate, a GTA, um, which is a lay person who trains medical students how to teach the pelvic or how to perform the pelvic exam. Rather, Um, I started doing that uh, when I was in college. And then when I went to graduate school and I was sort of looking around for a topic to do my dissertation on, there wasn't any research on this. And so I think it's a really fascinating case that tells us a lot about emotion and socialization and gender and things like that. So I started the project being really interested in embodied labor, so how people work with their bodies, um, and it expanded then to these bigger questions about clinical skills and medical education and those sorts of questions. So you begin the very first chapter of the book by describing, um, this is a quote, two very different regimes of practice for teaching and learning the pelvic exam in medical school, one regime before and then one after the introduction of gynecological teaching associates or GTAs. Can you tell us some more about um, these two regimes? Sure. So I... Situate the regimes as the doctor-centered versus the patient-centered regimes. Uh, And I'm really thinking about these regimes in terms of the role of emotion or affect, um, as I talk about in the book, uh, that plays in these two types of regimes. So in the first regime, which I I track to roughly about the 1970s, 1980s, um, physicians are encouraged and permitted to care about the population and care about taking care of people in general, but they're not uh, encouraged to care about patients in particular. Uh, Renee Onspach, right, calls this detached concern, and this is very much the mode of emotion um, that's going on during this time frame, which is 
caring in general, but not caring specifically, leaving your emotions outside of the clinic door. Uh, and then what we see changing in the 1980s and, and especially in the 1990s through the 2000s is this ramping up of uh, what J Jody Halpern and others have called clinical empathy, which is using your emotions as a resource um, and, and in clinical decision making um, and not just leaving your emotions at the clinic door. And it also shifts the way medicine thinks about patient emotions where, you know, in this previous regime, the way patients feel about their medical care isn't the goal, right? Taking care of patients, preventing disease, treating disease is the goal. In the second sort of regime, this patient-centered regime, there's more emphasis on the patient experience, on patients, how patients feel uh, about the care that they're receiving, about the, how they feel about their healthcare providers. And so uh, there's this really market change that happens in the 1980s and 1990s around emotion. Can you tell us a little bit about the methods that you use to research the book? Sure. Uh, so I um, followed Adele Clark uh, situational analysis um, primarily for the way I was approaching and analyzing the book, which is there's a historical component to it. And then I follow up the pelvic exam, teaching and learning the pelvic exam in medicine um, into the present moment, basically. Um, so I... They gathered interviews. I gathered archival sources from three major groups of stakeholders, GTAs themselves, medical faculty and medical students at three different medical schools in the city of Chicago. Uh, and so in terms of archival documents, I was looking at uh, medical journal articles, medical commentaries, uh, faculty meeting minutes, um, newsletters, uh, notes. Uh, things like that. You know, I went to interview one participant and she said, hold on a second. and went down to her basement and brought me all of her files that were basically all of the notes that she used to lecture about the pelvic exam from. So those are the kinds of historical uh, documentary archives that I, I gathered to, to do the research. Um, and then, you know, interviews with um, faculty, again, medical students and, and GTAs. Um, and it's informed a little bit by my own experiences, but that was um, secondary to the analysis. So before we kind of dig into some of your findings, um, I wondered if we could sort of take a moment and um, define for our listeners any key theoretical concepts that they might need to know to understand your overall argument? I'm thinking words like biopower, affect, habitus. Um, any are 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 there any um, any terminology that um, we would need to know to be able to understand what you um, uncovered in your research? Absolutely. So I think the primary term that I use um, that I spend a lot of time in the introduction, especially setting up, is the concept of affect. Uh, and I use that deliberately. Often scholars will use emotion and affect interchangeably um, or make the case why these are different. And so I'm making the case why affect is slightly different. Um, and so affect sort of builds on the tradition of thinking about uh, bodily capacities to sense, to feel, to relate. So affect is sort of the, the pre-social, pre-conscious, pre-linguistic experience um, that then becomes recognized and named as emotion. So when I, I talk about about affect. I am thinking about a component of emotion, but I'm primarily thinking about this sort of sensory uh, experiential thing that happens in the body and between bodies. And, and the re 
reason I like to use the term affect is because it is this sort of um, intersubjective experience. It flows through bodies. It flows between bodies. It flows between material and non-material objects. Um, so I use affect very, very deliberately in that way. I also use the concepts of biopower and governance uh, in the book. So I'm really hanging in on the neo-Foucauldian literature on sort of the rise of expertise and the sort of use of expertise, experts to uh, govern the population, right? Tell us how we should live our lives, things like that. So I think about biopower in the book as being um, this sort of new strategy for governance um, and for managing the population that's really based on uh, expert forms of knowledge that we then take up into ourselves um, and, and, and use to shape our, our own bodily capacities, our own attitudes, our own experiences of the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I think about governance then as that sort of uh, practice that, that starts with um, expert knowledge regimes, um, expert knowledge systems that then get taken up by, the, by people and by the population. Um, and so the sort of conceptual framework of the book is built around the idea of affective governance in medical education, which is uh, what I argue is the sort of new regime of um, sculpting subjects, both medical students and patients, that uses our capacities our, uh, and our abilities to sense and to relate and to experience the world um, in order to sort of create us uh, and turn us into these subjects that are going to be more malleable or amenable under these new strategies of power. Um, and with that, you know, since I'm so interested in this concept of subject making, I talk a lot about the habitus or the medical habitus in particular, which is sort of our, our embodied dispositions that get layered into us from experience and from history and from the larger social structures that we encounter. And did that concept relate, like, how did your own experience, did your own experiences as a GTA, as a PhD student, as a postdoc working in medical education, um, in, did inform your interpretation or analysis at all? You know, it definitely did. Um, I was a little bit less um, uncritical when I started doing the research because I, I came to the work of GTA. I was really interested in this um, uh, type of work that had a lot to do with, you know, patient empowerment, training medical students to think about the patient perspective. Um, and that was what, you know, when I was, I was in college, that's what drew me to the work. And then as I started sort of studying it, um, and sort of moved from different contexts um, in which I was doing the work from sort of a freestanding free clinic in Cleveland to uh, being part of a medical school and then you know, moving through graduate school into my postdoc where I was working in medical education and experiencing all of these different um, forms of clinical skills, training and evaluation that happen in medical school, um, I started to get really curious about how like what the work emotion is doing and what the work affect is doing here. Um, and to be a little bit more critical about how um, patient centeredness or making things friendly to the patient is also a way of securing patient compliance, basically, and sort of uh, also the ways in which um, the sort of feminist politics of the GTAs that, that started GTA programs and also drew me to doing GTA work myself have really been defanged as they've become embedded into the institution. Could you say a little bit more about that? Um, it's sort of in what ways does the story that you tell about the pelvic exam illustrate sort of larger trends in the history of medicine? 
Sure. So the, the primary trend I, I am tracing in the book is the shift from detached concern to clinical empathy. But one of the other trends that's really important is the role of standardized testing and a particular standardized testing of communication skills in medical education. Prior to about the 1970s, medical students weren't observed in any routine or regularized fashion interacting with patients. It was assumed that your bedside manner you would learn uh, along the way in medical school, basically by watching preceptors and mentors and develop your own style. Um, it was very much assumed that having expert knowledge, so knowing a lot about the way the human body works and knowing a lot about medicine and things like that was enough to make you a good doctor. But starting in the 1970s, we start seeing these really, really interesting debates. It really starts in the 60s and ramps up in the 70s and 80s about uh, basically how medical students are interacting with patients and how physicians are learning to interact with patients. And this is tied to, or I tie this in the book to the public distrust that is happening in the medical profession at this time. Um, and so I, I really see the medical profession picking up on the fact that patients aren't happy with the way that they're being treated by physicians. And so um, focusing on performance, so there's the shift from knowledge to performance, is one way to sort of re-secure the public's trust in the profession of medicine. So that's when you see the 70s and 80s are when you start seeing the rise of um, standardized patients, which are lay people who play as sick patients um, in order to either evaluate or teach medical students um, clinical skills. Uh, and GTAs are a subset of standardized patient. Um, and so that really kicks off in, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, we see it um, become part of the United States Medical Licensing Exam all the way through in 2012 when um, questions about emotion and empathy were added to the USMLE. So in order to become a licensed physician, you now have to uh, work with a standardized patient and basically pass a standardized test of your communication skills, which involves presenting and portraying yourself as an empathetic um, and, you know, caring provider in these ways. Um, so I see GTAs embedded in this, you know, shift in the way we handle emotion and affect in the clinic, but then also the shift in how we understand knowledge and performance and the sort of shift towards science-based um, trends. And this is also part of the rise of medical education as sort of a distinct knowledge base or a distinct specialty that, um, you know, starts in the 1950s, but really becomes solidified at the ends of the 1980s and 1990s. 90s, um, where you have this group of people who become experts in how to train doctors. Um, and so medical education as a, as a sort of field um, is also part of the story of the formation of GTAs. Could you say a little bit more about what exactly a GTA does? So there are a subset of standardized patients. Mm -hmm. um, what are the procedural steps of teaching a pelvic exam? How would how would this go? So how I would go, I'll, I'll paint a picture. Um, so the GTAs usually teach a group of two to three medical students at a time. Um, and the, the sort of biggest difference among the programs that I studied was whether the GTA was teaching um, by themselves or whether they were teaching with another person who was another GTA that they would pair with. So I'll use the model of the paired GTA. So uh, the medical students would like come into the room, they would walk through introducing themselves um, to both GTAs, and then uh, the GTA who's taking the teacher role would 
demonstrate the components of the breast and pelvic exam on the teaching partner who is playing the role of the patient, um, who is also giving feedback uh, as the medical student is performing the exam. So you have this one person who is, again, teaching the exam, so we'll give the medical students the correct language to use and show them the techniques and the skills that they'll use um, and the instruments and help them with like putting on gloves and opening a speculum and things like that. And then you have the GTA who's playing the role of the patient who is saying, you know, use more pressure, use less pressure, um, you know, you need to move your hand a little bit further this way, those kinds of things. Um, and so they teach the skills both and this varies depending on the program, whether they're teaching the breast exam as well, but they'll teach both, again, communication skills, so proper language, but then also the components of the pelvic exam, which involves an external visual exam of the genitalia, an internal exam in which the, the uterus, the ovaries, and the cervix are palpated between the two hands, and then also a speculum exam in which the you know instrument that this is the speculum is inserted into the vagina um, for visualization. GTAs don't teach pap smears because they, you know, uh, would not have any cervical cells left at the end of a teaching um, season. So they mostly just teach inserting the speculum, viewing the cervix, and then removing it. And all of this is emphasized um, the patient perspective and teaching this in a way that it is mindful of how patients feel during the exam. What's it like being a GTA? Why would someone seek this out as a, 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 form of employment. So the GTAs that I interviewed really emphasized two things about what motivated them to be GTAs. And the first set of things that motivates them is care about reproductive health care. Um, so a lot of them would talk about, you know, having bad experiences with reproductive health care themselves or having friends or family report back that they'd had bad experiences with health care. And they really wanted to make this a patient friendly, competent exam. And that motivation was really interesting how it changed over time because a lot of the GTAs that I interviewed who started working in the 1980s when GTA programs really began had this very sort of um, uh, explicitly feminist thing, right? Doctors have been sexist for a long time. They've been patriarchal. They've been paternalist. I want to teach them uh, a better way. And, and GTAs who started working in the 90s and the 2000s have a little bit more of a, you know, this is a hard exam. It's scary to do this. Um, it's scary to have to confront a naked female body for the first time and, and, and do this in a sensitive way. And so I want to improve that experience for patients by teaching medical students a better way to do this. And so that links to the second motivation, uh, which is about, you know, improving education for medical students. A lot of GTAs recognize, again, that this is a scary exam. Uh, and it involves a lot of complex emotions and feelings that have to be managed um, successfully in order to do the exam. So they really wanted to uh, create a better educational environment and help medical students learn to do these things successfully. Uh, and then the sort of, you know, tacit motivation in there as well as the fact that it's it's pretty well paying. Um, the programs I studied averaged about $55 an hour, so it makes an excellent sort of side gig, which was, you know, the case for me as I was a grad student in the increasingly expensive city of Chicago. It was, it was great side money to have. So um, there's sort of these two altruistic motivations, and then certainly it does pay very well and has a very flexible um, part-time schedule. So not only did you interview um, all these GTAs at 
a variety of different medical schools, um, work for a time as a GTA yourself. After your um, PhD, you went on to do a postdoc in medical education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you sort of, you, you got to see this from the perspective of a, a sort of participant, a re- you know, um, educator, a researcher, and then a medical education researcher. Mm-hmm. So um, I wondered if you, you could tell us a little bit about um, how the use of GTAs was legitimized through medical education research and sort of what did you, what did you make of this research when, once you became engaged in it? It's really interesting because uh, GTAs really, even though um, standardized patients are now the sort of most common um, uh, layperson who's doing this kind of work that a medical student will encounter, um, you know, the most frequent, I should say, GTAs are used by about 72 to 90 percent of medical schools, depending on the study that you look at. Um, GTAs really sort of kicked off this process because in the 60s and the 70s, um, you know, feminist activists outside of medical education uh, were very critical about the ways that the pelvic exam was being taught. It was very dehumanizing and patronizing. And so they were um, developing these different models um, based out of and around sort of the feminist self-help clinics at the time where they were teaching. Um, And they were approached by medical students um, originally at Harvard. And then, uh, as I tell in the book, in Chicago, um, they were approached uh, at the by medical students as well, right? So by women, which is interesting. Um, and so, you know, it started as this 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 model for lay people to give medical students feedback on both their exam skills and their communication skills. Um, and when we see the rise of what's called an OSCE or an objective structured clinical exam in the 1970s and 1980s, you see this expansion of this layperson model in um, of teaching and learning into different environments. Um, And that was really very much about, you know, giving medical students the opportunity to uh, practice their clinical and communication skills, but also to give them a standard experience, right? So instead of being beholden to who you have in the clinic at that time, everybody's getting the same type of thing to practice. And, And the research on GTAs in the 1980s that happens is really foundational to this because you see medical educators start um, comparing groups of students who had gone through the GTA program versus those who had gone through the sort of standard model at the time or practiced on a a rubber model or a clinic patient. And they're comparing them both in terms of their skill um, and their ability to communicate empathetically, but they're also um, comparing them in terms of their anxiety and how much the GTA program reduced their anxiety. So the, as I argue in the book, this sort of research was, was pretty foundational to setting up this this new model of using lay people um, and that this research focused on, you know, in particular students' anxiety uh, was really foundational towards this, this shift away from um, detached concern where medical students shouldn't have feelings about the things that they're doing. And so it was interesting to me knowing this sort of history and then moving into a space where I'm on the, the side of the medical education researchers and I'm posing these questions and I'm involved in developing these new um, types of, you know, or modifying existing types of standardized or simulated patient encounters. Um, it was just really interesting to see see how questions about affect and emotion are are getting embedded in these things, right? How do we train medical students to interact with all of the different 
types of people that they're going to encounter in the clinical space and all of the different, um, you know, emotionally charged situations that they're going to be encountering from a patient who is angry to a patient who is, you know, uh, really upset and sad and grieving um, and learning how to both experience their own emotions and then that context in a way that they can manage, but also manage the patient's emotions in a way that is um, productive to their goals um, without, uh, you know, basically shutting down the patient completely. So it was just interesting to go from being a GTA myself to going to being on the side of the researcher and and, and looking at how um, we're measuring these things, which is another thing that I discuss a lot in the book is the, the types of measurements that were developed. As someone who um, I, I work in a medical school and um, I teach a, a I, I'm a preceptor and a doctoring course and um, I and this this is what we want medical students to be able to do like provide patient centered care um, we want to develop their you call it affect we might call it non cognitive skills right um, so I, so I just you know I wonder what what could what could there possibly be to be critical of about this research? You do you do have some critiques of it. Yeah, I do. You know, and I I I, I am very careful to end chapter one and and to discuss throughout the book that I would never want to go back to the previous model. Um, you know, in which clinic patients are basically guinea pigs for medical students learning. Um, I, I am very appreciative of the fact that we have standardized and simulated patients and that we have GTAs to do this work so that medical or clinical patients aren't being exploited really in these ways. And I, I really do value the fact that we are um, giving medical students the space to experience their feelings and giving them spaces in which to see other people model how to have the kinds of intense emotions that medical training and the profession of medicine brings up. Um, and I, you know, the, the students and the faculty that I spoke to, they absolutely genuinely care about patients um, and they care about providing really good health care. That was one of the things I was very, very struck by is, is how much they do care about patients. The, the thing that I get critical about is the sort of apparatus of expert knowledge that this gets plugged into is the, the way in which it becomes standardized, um, the way in which empathy basically gets distilled down in GTA um, encounters and in standardized patient encounters more broadly to a checklist of skills that either you're performing or you're not performing. The appendix of the book, I sort of collated three different um, checklists that GTAs have used over the years that go from sort of this open-ended, you know, try to do these kinds of things to this very like done, not done checklist. And I, I think that that sort of standardizing um, apparatus, it, it reduces those down to just observable behaviors. And it doesn't encourage medical students necessarily to reflect on the experiences that they're, that they're having and to really embody those values. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm critical of that because I understand that, you know, when you're obsessing somebody or you're attempting to do this kind of um, uh, objective research on this, you need to have, you know, this was done, this was not done. You need to have these kind of measures. But I, I think the outcome of this is that it, it sort of teaches medical students that this is a routinized thing, right? You go into the room, you, you know, make sure you wash your hands, you make sure you make eye contact, you make sure you say, you know, 
that must be hard for you. You know, you, you use all of these phrases and these actions um, in order to pass the test rather than creating a space for them to truly um, reflect on the experience that they're having and try to develop that empathetic connection. And I think that this is a, you know, this is not something that is unique to the GTA context. I think medical educators uh, broadly right now are really, really struggling with this. If we value empathy, how do we foster it? Um, given all of the things that medical students have to learn and to do in their very, very already packed curriculum. And every day there are more demands on their time and on their resources. Um, and, and I think it just poses a lot of important questions about, you know, how do we create uh, medical students who can actually reflect and, and engage in this sort of deeply felt experience of empathy and compassion? Um, and, you know, how do you decouple that from the sort of standardized assessments that are being um, proliferated all the time in medical education? So I'll, I guess I'll turn that question back around. How how do you, right? You think um, yeah. professional identity formation, the development of, of professionalism, these are these are really hard things to to quantify and measure. So um, can you, you have some ideas about the relationship between simulations and, um, and you know, and the develop and professional identity formation. I wondered if you could share those, some of those. Yeah, sure. So I um, see simulation as this space that is a low risk, uh, playful sort of context um, in which uh, medical students, and not playful in that it's not serious, but playful in that there is the ability to make mistakes and learn from them, and that it's not um, as serious as working with a real patient. So it's this sort of open space in which medical students can try on the attitudes, the values, and the dispositions that are the medical habitus or the sort of professional identity formation um, that they're going through in, in this space where they're supported. They're not going to be uh, judged or ridiculed by the person that they're working with. There's not a patient there, a real patient for there for them to, to harm um, or, you know, embarrass or be damaged by or damage in some way. Um, not that the pelvic exam is, is that risky, but there, there's a lot of really fraught emotions. And I think that that's the thing that medical students get the most anxious about. Um, so simulation is the space where they can practice these things. And because, uh, you know, a GTA session is not, um, you know, a standardized graded exercise in the same way that, you know, working with a simulated patient on the USMLE is, um, there's a little bit more flexibility, right? There's a chance for medical students to both try out the physical skills. So, you know, an ovary is extremely hard to palpate. Um, even experienced physicians have a really hard time sometimes finding people's ovaries. So, you know, having this trained person who can walk them through, you know, a how to palpate the ovary and, and help them find their own ovary in this very specific way is really useful for them. But it also allows them to practice the emotional dispositions or the affective dispositions, right? Trying on um, care and compassion and, 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 you know, learning to really confront their own um, feelings of anxiety or nervousness about 
doing the pelvic exam or hurting the patient or embarrassing themselves in front of their peers. Um, it's a really useful space for that. And because the GTA model has evolved so that there isn't a physician preceptor in the room, right, that also sort of takes the stakes down, at least in the GTA programs that I, I studied. Um, there's not a faculty member there, so they don't have to worry about sort of showing off how knowledgeable they are about the anatomy and about reproductive health care to this person who is going to be evaluating them. Um, they can just practice the exam and work through the feelings that they have about this kind of intimate context in this space. And, and you know, I say that it's it's not, you know, the end all be all of professional identity formation, but it helps medical students as part of this whole process of learning to adopt these values. So um, there are sort of, um, you know, national trends now in the development of um, undergraduate medical curricula in, say, um, health advocacy. Um, and the end of, of the book, you conclude that patient empowerment needs to be reconceptualized in medical education. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about um, what you mean by that and, and sort of practically what would, it, what would it mean to reconceptualize patient empowerment? So I'm critical of the patient empowerment discourses. Um, it, one, I trace throughout the book, it's sort of this, this theme that begins in the beginning and, and reemerges at the end of the book about the sort of feminist practices of care that informed the GTA program and informed the way in which the pelvic exam was taught and learned. So the really early feminist projects in uh, reworking how medical students learn the pelvic exam are focused on things like um, fragmentation of skills and the hierarchy between the physician and the patient and the you know structural impediments to accessing health care that have to do with financing health care that have to do with the you know racist history of coercive sterilization and other medical abuses that have to do with um, you know sexist norms around what a pelvic exam uh, is intended to do which you know it started out as being very much about teaching a woman her quote-unquote place in society um, through this expert physician, right? So the early feminists um, were really, really focused on using reworking the space of the pelvic exam to challenge these bigger structural constraints, which was about empowering patients to understand their own bodies and to be active and engaged in their health care. And as this sort of got embedded into medical education and became this kind of like, you know, standardized uh, um, exercise that I was just being so critical of, right? Some of that like explicit politicization sort of gets removed and it becomes about, you know, taking care of the medical student, making sure that they're okay and they're able to work through their feelings. Um, and it becomes this sort of narrow idea about what patient empowerment is, which is, you know, making the patient active and informed. And so I tie that to a lot of critiques about, um, uh, about sort of the structural positioning of patients and about the, the sort of work of biopower and biopolitics in which, you know, the right kinds of subjects um, are rewarded in these medical contexts when they try to uh, do forms of patient empowerment, right? So informing a patient every step of the way and sort of trying to cultivate these communication styles, reward patients who have the social privilege, right? Who tend to be white middle class um, to act on these things. So I, that's how I'm critical of patient empowerment in this way. Um, and I really think that, you know, with 
stimulation and with thinking more broadly about patient empowerment, we have an opportunity in medical education, in um, healthcare professions more broadly, to think about how can we use um, some of these types of experiences, these simulated experiences, to equip medical students with um, what has been called sort of structural humility or structural um, competency to think about, you know, the structural positioning of their patients and themselves um, and to work through some of those experiences. So, you know, there, there are programs like patient navigators where medical students follow a patient as they seek out health care. There are experiences in which um, medical students are, are learning from trans and gender non-conforming patients about uh, reproductive health care. There are different ways, I think, um, that we can use these encounters. Like, uh, you know, how could we conceptualize using a simulated encounter to teach medical students to screen for housing insecurity, um, to screen for food insecurity, to talk to patients about uh, intimate partner violence and, um, you know, the, the sorts of structural vulnerabilities that make people um, susceptible to those kinds of violences. I think we need to think more broadly, um, especially now, given that we're in this huge moment of crisis as a country and as uh, a health profession because of COVID-19 and all of the, you know, deeply embedded structural inequalities that it's, it's exposing. I think this is an opportunity to rethink what does patient empowerment actually mean here? What are we empowering patients to do? Is it to, you know, uh, follow along with this sort of capital um, profit-seeking game of medicine and be sort of complicit and obedient to medical authority? Or do we want to think about patient empowerment as how do we identify people's needs and meet those needs? And how do we equip physicians to um, work within their scope of practice to identify and meet those needs in a way that truly um, empowers patients and gives them the resources to make choices? Well, I love that. I love all of those ideas, Kelly. Um, um, and it's a it's a wonderful way to to conclude the book. Um, and and your really just um, thoughtful and meticulous um, research is to to be looking forward at what is the next um, regime. And well, I, we could probably find a, a better word for it. <laughs> what the you know. The next frontier? Mm -hmm. No, that's not a good word either in medical education. You know what I mean. Yes. Um, uh, I, I want to thank um, we We have taken up a lot of your time. Um, and I wondered if you could just tell us what what are you working on now? What, what are you researching now? What's next? So I, you know, I lay out, especially in the conclusion, a lot of interest in um, uh, the idea of affect and bio capital. Um, and so I'm really interested in sort of the ways in which affect gets valued um, in health profession spaces and in society more broadly. Um, so, you know, uh, why do we cultivate certain affects? How do they get measured? How do they get valued socially, politically, and economically? Um, and that sort of coincided with an interest that I have in wellness initiatives in the health professions. And I should say I started this project um, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we've just been watching um, over the last couple months of this sort of of ramping up these questions about sort of burnout and well-being in the health professions have only gotten more um, serious and more important. And so my, my, the current work research that I'm working on is sort of looking at the evaluation of burnout and well-being um, in the health professions. And so how do we intervene in 
burnout and in well-being and foster well-being and what does that mean for um, the practices that people have to encounter every day in their jobs? What are the forms of expert knowledge at work in creating these valuations of well-being and burnout? Um, and sort of how does this uh, affect patient populations? What are the logics about about value, about capitalism, about healthcare, about uh, what it means to be a responsible healthcare provider? You know, what are these logics that are happening? So that's the study. Um, I'm working. Uh, the first piece is looking at the the emergence and use of well-being apps in the health professions. I've received some funding to do, and then I'm expanding out from there. Wow. Well, that sounds like a really great project. Um, and I hope it's it becomes another book eventually, because um, I so enjoyed this one. Um, Kelly, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really wonderful.